This is the Disability Visibility Podcast with your host, Alice Wong. Greetings, cyborgs and humanoids. Welcome to the Disability Visibility Podcast. Two conversations of disability politics, two culture and media. I'm your host, Alice Wong. Today's episode is about cyborgs with Ashley Hsu and Julie DeFaisa. Ashley is an assistant professor at Virginia Tech in the Science, Technology, and Society Department. Their current work centers on the idea of techno-ableism, a critical list to narratives about technology and disability. Julian is a poet, performance artist, and disability rights activist. Julian has written about being a cyborg for Granta and the New York Times. The three of us talked about our shared identities as cyborgs and what that means to us. You'll also learn more about triborgs and techno-ableism and how they relate to disabled people. Are you ready? Do we go? Five, four, three, two, one. Okay, so Ashley and Julian, uh, thank you so much for being on my podcast today. Oh, thank you so much for having us, Alice. It's a thrill to be here with you. Well, I'm really thrilled too because today's episode is about cyborgs, which is a topic. Very near and dear to my heart, and I thought of you two immediately when I think about cyborgs. And why don't you both uh, introduce yourselves first? Ashley, do you want to go first? Did it really? Oh, sure. Uh, my name is Ashley Shu. I'm an assistant professor at Virginia Tech in science, technology, and society. I'm also a hard of hearing chemo brained amputee with Crohn's disease. Um, so I've got like disability bingo going on at any moment and winning um, uh, on all the squares. My name is Jillian Weissa. I am a cyborg, a poet, a performance artist, and a disability rights activist. I write poetry and I have a sci-fi novel out and I'm just so thrilled to be here with you. Thank you. And uh, let's talk about cyborgs because, you know, just very broadly, I think there are, you know, lots of different representations and ideas about what cyborgs are, especially in, like, let's say, you know, popular culture, like the Terminator. Yeah, you know, of course, his scholarship. There's, you know, Donna Haraway's uh, essay called A Cyborg Manifesto. So I guess my first question to both of you is, how would you describe cyborgs to someone who's new to this term? Uh, Julia, do you want to go first? And then Ashley? Sure, sure. Um, I have a clear moment of when I became a cyborg, though I also don't like to gatekeep the term. So I'm open to anyone disabled claiming that term. But for me, I became a cyborg in 2010 when I went from a hinge style a prosthetic knee to a computerized knee. And so I would just explain to someone who's not familiar with the idea 
of a cyborg who is a disabled person, um, this notion that your body depends on a computer and your body is a computer. So I don't yet have any computerized parts, unless you count my hearing aids, which um, come off a little bit more easily. Um, so I think about when I think about cyborgs, I think about where the term sort of originated. So I get to work with Damian Williams, who's um, excellent and fun. And he's done all of this unearthing around the history of the word cyborg. So um, the coinage, I believe, is during the 1960s or late 1950s with Klein and Kleins. And what they're talking about in terms of cyborgs um, often involves, in fact, psychotropic medication as part of it. So cybernetic organisms will also be those um, enhanced um, with... Um, um, it's like ph ph pharmaceuticals, uh, but also includes uh, other types of what might be called enhancement, but then also might include parts um, that were not um, original. Um, so all of these sorts of things fit into sort of a pretty broad definition of cyborg for me. I also really like, um, so Jillian has introduced the term triborg to describe uh, non-disabled uh, cyborg wannabes. Um, but then I also think about the term cripborg um, that Bethany Stevens talks about, that um, that all cyborgs are cripborgs um, in, in the way that she uses it. Yeah, I definitely feel like, uh, you know, just for my own body, like there's a lot of hardware that's it be like there's, I have a metal rod that, that fuses, I have a spinal fusion, and, you know, my, as people just hear me, uh, my voice sounds a little different because I'm wearing a mask attached to a ventilator. And to me, you know, I don't know if it's about necessarily uh, computers, but definitely electricity is something that's, you know, my body is completely dependent on. That there's, you know, I have hardware inside of me, I have hardware attached outside of me and you know if I go a day without you know with a power outage I am in deep deep trouble so you know those are some of the ways I think about cyborg bodies is that you know our attachments are our reliance on things outside of our organic you know uh, meat sack that we uh, that we're born with Alice Wong, I love um, the way you're talking about it in terms of like electricity or a power outage, because that's sometimes how I will refute someone who's coming out of Haraway's, we are all cyborgs. The person, a triborg, usually wants to claim that their phone is integral to their being and their ontology. Uh, however, if they didn't have a phone, they could still walk, they could still breathe. And so for me, that's at the heart of it. Um, I also think that there's something to be said about cultural context. Um, I think another critique I've heard is, well, you're not really a cyborg because you can still exist without your leg, but I'm endangered as a disabled woman, um, or I feel endangered if I don't have a leg that works for me. So um, I think it's personal and subjective a lot of the time. So that's how I come to the term cyborg. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, I think about natural disasters all the time because I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. And, you know, I do think about, like, 
Like, holy shit, if there wasn't a three-day, let's say the big earthquake hits, you know, how would I charge my ventilator, charge my wheelchair? You know, and these are the things that make me, that remind me about, you know, how fragile our our lives are and, and how dependent we are, not just on our physical, you know, uh, survival, but just, you know, what we need to survive. And I think that's what a lot of people do not understand when they say that, you know, disabled people as cyborgs, because it really is about our life, our bodily functions, our, our basic kind of functions of living. Julia's article in the uh, New York Times called it The Dawn of the Triborg. And, you know, uh, if you don't mind, Julian, I just, I just love this essay so much. I just laughed my ass off. <laughs> well, thank you, Alice. I'm delighted that they took a chance on it. Um... For the listeners who are not familiar with this, uh, with this term in your essay, uh, what is a triborg as opposed to a cyborg? A triborg in a basic sense is a faker, a wannabe, a poser. Um, someone who maybe studies cyborgs. So, of course, Donna Haraway is a triborg. All the way up to Google's CEO of engineering, Ray Kurzweil, definitely a triborg. But the triborg doesn't need to be famous. It could just be the person at the office who has the standing desk and the Google Glass or whatever comes after the Google Glass that is tech savvy and they're a triborg. They're experiencing whatever notions of cyborg body first and foremost as metaphor. Yeah, I think triborgs are like, you know, people who use tech or you know, whatever we think of as tech, uh, mainly as, like, accessories. But it's not central or necessary to my existence. And I think that's what's, you know, different from disabled people, many of us, where, you know, without these things, we we wouldn't be who we are. Yes. We wouldn't be who we are, I think, is really an important way of looking at it. The triborg would still be who they are without the metaphor, but we are constituted by cyborg bodies. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think triborgs get to opt out when it's convenient for them in a way that doesn't exist for um, 
cyborgs, for cryptborgs, for disabled cyborgs, um, however you want to couch that. We actually read Jillian's piece in almost all my classes now. Oh, wow. That's so cool. You're being read um, by a whole bunch of students at Virginia Tech. Um, cool. And, Thank you. No, it's my pleasure because it really, this triborg versus cyborg, it really helps them pick out in literature. Like when we're reading about different advertisements about technologies and a lot of the hypes, um, that goes along in sort of these media narratives and social narratives about technology, um, they'll start themselves labeling our authors into triborgs and cyborgs. I love this. I wish I could witness this. That's wonderful. It's it's such a useful tool, this vocabulary you've, you've brought. I agree. I think we needed this term, and I think that's why, you know, when I read it, it was like, oh, my God, like, you know, finally somebody is like, Looking deep into my soul, I just, like, you saw me, and, uh, you know, I think there's something about, let's say, these damn triborgs that, like, you know, they fetishize these things that are really just, like, absolute necessities in our lives, you know, and I think that's the fetishization and just the kind of commercialization in terms of, like, oh, you know, one term I just really hate is like wearable tech. Right now, that's a, you know a super, a super hot trend. You know, like you know everybody has something that's like wearable tech, and this is like they kind of forget that this is an extension and expansion of what disabled people have been, you know, experiencing and doing for for decades. And I think that's another thing about triboards is that not only can they opt out, but it's also about this like, you know, co-optation of our culture. Absolutely. And it uh, veers into, I don't know how to say this, but there's something despicable about triborgs and capitalism in the way that triborgs are wanting to sell us on um, this machine that climbs stairs for you instead of uh, putting in ramps as the law says that you must since 1990. Um, yeah, so there's definitely a fetishization about new tech um, and there's all this money for triborg creations at the same time as actual cyborgs are on GoFundMe begging for their lives. We talked about cyborgs are definitely a part of our past, our present, and our future. And yet there are these people, you know, identify as, you know, futurists who really believe, and people in speculative fiction, who truly believe that disability will not exist in the future. That their idea that it is better world in the future, 
there will be an absence of disability and pain and suffering through advancements in medicine and technology. And what are your thoughts about that uh, in terms of just the future of cyborg futures and the, uh, you know, disability in the future? I mean, I have so many thoughts. For for one thing, it just seems like a repetition of a eugenics desire for disabled people to get rid of us, to euthanize us, sterilize us. So in one sense, um, this futurism looks very similar to pre-Holocaust Europe's futurism. Um, but on the other hand, I kind of want to reply to the futurists with the absurd notion that they're going to eliminate war. Yeah, no, I didn't. When we think about, I think you're exactly right, Jillian, on, on the link to eugenics here. Right. I, I There was a, a lecture, I remember it was being advertised, and I about blew a gasket and I emailed the organizer because the title of the talk was The End of Disability. Wow. Um, and this person, and I asked the organizer, is this person disabled, right? Because I might give them a pass if they had some sort of um, disability story like about the community or like, like it could be a different story than we're going to end disability through cures, right? I could imagine something creative and interesting. Maybe it would be hard to with that title. Um, and I tried to explain why this was the uh, terrible <laughs> title for a talk, the end of disability, because when you say the end of disability, you mean the end of disabled people. Right. And if we value the disability community, it doesn't mean that everyone has to love their disabilities or that we're some sort of disability supremacist situation. <laughs> Though we might be. Well, I mean, we don't have to. We don't commit. We don't have to be. Yeah. Point. I'm just just spitballing. Um, there's, uh, you know, the, the, the idea that that what we all want is the end of disability is the wrong story to tell about disability. And it's inevitable that there will be disabled people. I mean, you're talking about the end of war, right? We're talking about the end of injuries and disabilities caused by war. But you'd have to eliminate a whole bunch of other things too um, if you wanted uh, to avoid disability. But even then, people are born disabled. So I, I just took issue with the fact that, well, lots of issues, but it assumed so much about what disabled people want and it assumed that you can't have a good life and be disabled. And this seems to me to be very much in line with a lot of religious conversations about disability, uh, particularly around blindness, around being lame, for instance, um, that, that these things are narratives that seek out cures in religious traditions. And I see a lot of the talk in uh, medicine as an extension of that. You know, it's amazing you mentioned that title, uh, actually, because two years ago at South by Southwest, uh, Elizabeth Jackson uh, tweeted uh, and talked about she went to a session called The End of Disability as well. And it was all about how tech was going to, you know, fix every problem. But then, like, this is going to be so amazing, this future where, where disabled people will not be disabled thanks to technology. Right. And why do they want to kill us so badly is what I always wonder. Um, because the other alarming thing to me is that when someone always with the best of intentions 
suggest to me just in conversation, wouldn't it be great, though, if there was no disability? There's a gleam in their eye as they say this. It's sinister and strange to me. It is not just chilly, but it's also fidgety. This is the idea that somehow by using this device or this augmentation that somehow that makes you whole, you know, that somehow that disabled person is still will be transformed. And I think that's another huge misconception is that we can use these things to improve our lives, but it does not change, you know, inherently our disabled experience in society. And that's, you know, so much of it is about the way, you know, we're seen and the way our society is still, you know, very much ableist. And I think that's something that, you know, the social aspect, the political aspects, will never really go away no matter how much money and technology you throw at us. the term that your own scholarship called techno-ableism. So can you tell the listeners what that is? Yeah, so techno-ableism is a specific brand or strain of ableism that I see as really pervasive. Um, And it has a lot to do with this urge to normalize, to end disability. Uh, But people who are techno-ableist, A, think think they're going to solve all your problems and cure you through technology. But they also end up branding their tech, talking about their tech, creating their tech um, with the idea that technological solutions will empower disabled people. So it becomes techno-optimistic, but it also has this savior flavor to it. um, And it ends up lauding any tech for disability without even considering what disabled people want usually. So I've loved, um, and I know you've uh, shared some of this through disability vis- visibility, Alice, um, the most recent exoskeleton debacle um, um, where uh, disability Twitter um, smacked a lot of that rhetoric down really quickly. Um, and I've been seeing, I mean, exoskeletons have been in the news for a decade and bloggers in the disability community have been talking about this, but it's not, as widely known that not everyone is waiting for the exoskeleton. Um, And in fact, it serves a much smaller population than um, most people who are boosters of it would think. Uh, But there's this, the way in which that gets talked about, right? Well, we're going to have this and then we won't need sidewalks or um, it's going to, you know, be a game changer. Most technologies for disability are not game changers. Mm -hmm. Some of them will be incremental improvements and that is great. I like incremental improvements. I mean, you were talking about your knee, Jillian. Right. Would you say it's an incremental improvement? It was. It was in the sense that I just don't fall. And so I don't like falling particularly. And I could um, expect probably six falls a year on a hinge style knee. And I just don't fall on this uh, knee. However, I love your term techno-ableism. And it also reminds me of this leg or even techno-optimism, I think you also said. 
because when they sold me on the leg, they're like, you'll love it. It's great. You can golf. Well, I don't golf. You can <laughs> ski. I don't ski. I'm like, I'd like to run though. I'd like to run for the first time because I do the treadmill. I like a treadmill because it's Borgian like me. It's consistent. I don't have to wander after the ground. Like, well, sorry, you can't run on this leg. So, I mean, that's just so emblematic of techno-ableism. We've prepared this computerized leg for X, Y, and Z, but not this thing the disabled person actually would like to try. I think about this. So I, I don't know if you've been to any amputee coalition events. Um, I know we're both amputees. Um, I have not yet. They have like a showroom. We'll have to go sometime because it's fun to go with a friend who's similarly um, skeptical about what they're trying to sell you. Um, there's this room full of, it's full of people trying to sell you feet. There's lots of feet. Oh, wow. Okay. You know how uh, most amputees are like amputees, and one of the things that all legs have is usually feet, right? So less so on the knees. They have some knees, right. but it's a lot of feet and a lot of feet salespeople. Yes. And they want to tell you about all the things that you'll be able to do with their feet. And, I mean, feet are fine. If yeah. I got a better foot, it's just a better foot. Well, I, I'm so glad you're bringing at, up feet, actually, because I very much like my foot. Um, which would be, which, you know, to our non-disabled audience would be considered a fake foot, but to me is considered my real foot. However, without my bodily consent, the company who makes my foot changed the design a year ago. And so I'm really interested in the ways that we don't have bodily autonomy as cyborgs. This company just decided to redesign my foot. And now I've got to learn how to walk all over again because somebody named Brian had an idea. Oh, Brian. Oh, <laughs> no offense to the Brians of the world. But There's a lot of assumptions that the Brians make about what I'm going to do on my foot. Mm -hmm. And one of them is about the skin color I'm going to want on my foot. Mm -hmm. And then I will want a skin color on my foot. I'm kind of sick of the Bryans. I'm so sorry, everyone named Brian. <laughs> um, thinking that what I'm going to want looks like what I used to have. Wow. Yes. I really would like a blue sparkly foot, but no one will make one for me. Okay. So you go into this room of feet and there are no deviations from norm foot. There is a jet black one that came out two years ago, and that is, and I wear that foot because the foot shell doesn't look dirty. Every when you're pale like I am, they try to match you up to your color, but that's just a foot that looks dirty all the time mm -hmm. and is gross after two weeks. And my black jet black foot um, at least doesn't look dirty, even though it wouldn't be my preferred color. But they think I want it to look like a human foot, and it's super creepy. They have those little doll toes on them. You know, mm -hmm. toes? yes, I do. Why even have toes? I, I mean, there's a lot of assumptions about normalizing my body in a way that I don't even care about. Mm -hmm. Those creepy doll feet, though. Ugh. Okay. Oh, you know why? It gives you the opportunity to put toe nail polish. There you go. There's your pre-trained your femininity. Oh, God. No, and right now, you can't see my foot, but I have googly eyes glued onto each toenail. Oh, I love it. So, so it's yes. really black. Yeah. 
Here's what we have with the book of poetry, uh, on September 3rd, 2019, called Cyborg Detective. Did already that title just like makes me want to buy it. So, uh, can you tell me a little bit more about Cyborg Detective? Sure. Um, I'm, the book is a mix of invectives, which is a term that just means like uh, insult poems and love poems. And um, I'm kind of looking at how disabled people get used in the Western literary canon. So I'm calling out Raymond Carver's Cathedral, uh, William Carlos Williams, our, our famous doctor poet in the book. Then I also am doing some cyborg techniques in the poems, like biohacking poems or introducing a continuous poem called Attack List, which started with just the very modest question, where are the disabled women in international headlines? What are we doing? What are we up to? And then in collecting all of the international headlines that feature those words, disabled and woman, realizing the violence uh, of that. And so that poem continues on Twitter at Attack List. I'm really excited about it. Well, thank you both. I'm so um, thrilled to kind of come into this conversation with other cyborgs and cryptborgs and really claim cyborgness in, in a book of poems. Absolutely, because we need, you know, we need the, you know, poetry and art and other forms of, you know, culture to really explicate cyborg life. And I think just as much as we need, you know, research and scholarship, but I think you know, we need more of our our culture transmitted out there. So as we wrap up, uh, do either of you have anything else you'd like to share about cyborgs or just cyborg life related to yourself or any other thoughts you have about cyborgs? I would love to rep for this article that came out um, called Transmobility, Rethinking the Possibilities in Cyborg Cripborg Bodies by Ashley and Bethany Stevens and Mallory K. Nelson. I love how this article for any listener or reader, hello, transcript readers. Um, I love how this article shows Cripborgs and Cyborgs in conversation from your own experiences, um, Ashley, your experience and your co-writer's experience. It was really fun to do. Thank you so much for uh, mentioning it, Jillian. I um, yes, it means everything that 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 you approve of it and like it because it is in this cyborg vein. Uh, I mean, you you precede us in the literature on this, and uh, we take definitely take inspiration from your work as well. How about you, Ashley? Do you have any other like shout outs or anything that you want to mention? I guess I'm wondering about your thoughts, Alice, um, about um, technology and disabled bodies. Um, so we read things from you um, and you've written about science fiction, uh, but this question of cyborgs, you've written about yourself as a cyborg as well. Do you have any thoughts to add about this? I'm, I'm interested. Well, you know, I think uh, I have a lot of affection and, you know, I feel a kinship with other 
disabled people who are cyborgs. And I feel like, you know, using that identity is another aspect of, you know, not all disabled people are cyborgs, but there are a lot of disabled people who are cyborgs. So I see us as kind of this very unique kind of subset that's really vibrant. And I feel like uh, there are more of us out there that we realize. And that to me is really interesting in the sense that how do we get folks to really think about their embodiment but also just the inherent tensions, right? There's, you know, I think I've written about this too, but like, you know, I'm skeptical of, you know, all these narratives around technology and yet, you know, I make it very plain and clear that, you know, my life would not be what it is today without technology. So, you know, I use it, but yet, you know, I do have qualms, right? And I think that's, I think we all kind of wrestle with these kind of, you know, issues. So I think a cyborg life is not exactly this, this static thing, right? It's a very constantly evolving, very dynamic process. So that to me is what is really interesting about my own cyborg existence, especially as, you know, somebody with a progressive dis- uh, disability, or over time, I have used more and more technology. You know, my body has become weakened over time. It's just the way it is. It's just, that's just my trajectory. And, uh, you know, I've seen how, you know, privileged I am to be alive in this particular time period so that I can have access to do so many things that, let's say, you know, a generation or two ago, you know, it it wouldn't even be possible. So, you know, I'm mindful of that, that so much of what, who I am today, what I can do today, is very much a function of time, you know, circumstance, you know, clearly, you know, capital. So those are kind of my thoughts. I like those. It sort of points to um, the fact that disabled people aren't. So even when I talk about techno-ableism, I'm not trying to be uh, anti-technology. Right? I, lo- I, I love a lot of my devices. And even the ones I don't like, I like, right? I'm, I'm using a lot of things. If I've chosen them, there's, there's usually good reasons behind them. But I, th- I think that is important to keep in mind that what we want is good technologies, technologies that we want, and not just um, normalizing technologies or technologies that tell us in normalizing us that we weren't good enough before. I also just want to add that I love this conversation we're having in it. And it highlights for me that we're in the naming and claiming phase. But like, I'm looking forward to the episode on cyborg love and cyborg friendship. Because one thing I've noticed coming into community with other cyborgs is conversation is easy. We can talk about having an especially Borg day or whatever in a way that is distinct from conversations with non-Borgs, to be honest. So um, I love the possibilities that cyborg community raises. Absolutely. 
Well, Julia and Ashley, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Alice. This has been amazing. Yeah, thanks for this time with you and your audience. Absolutely. I'm grateful for the part of both of you. And, you know, I'm just so uh, happy that we are cyborg friends. Me too. This podcast is a production of the Disability Visibility Project. In all my community dedicated to creating, sharing, and amplifying the disability media and culture. All episodes of community text transcripts are available at disabilityvisibilityproject.com slash podcast. Did you also find out more about Julia and Ashley's work? Talk about websites. The audio producer for this episode is Jodine Asu. Introduction by Latif McLeod. The music by Roger Sports Camp. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or Google Play. Did you also support our podcast for a dollar month or more? To buy you to our Patreon page. At patreon.com slash dvp. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash TVP. Today's release day. Day see you on the internet. Bye. Rock into the blast stop. Stop, drop, dance off.